Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, we've got Becca McKay from ETC. And Becca is going to join us to talk about uh, the first of, of several conversations we're going to have centered around systems work. And when we talk about systems work, today specifically we're talking about work in the school system. So uh, when we talk about whether it's TBRI, trauma informed care, uh, attachment-based care, um, no matter what phrase or, or modality you want to discuss within this world, um, there is always a second or, or uh, deeper conversation within the school system because oftentimes the pushback you'll receive is it is uh, too time consuming. We don't have a way to do that and also care for the other 30 kids in our class. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that because we, we brought Becca on uh, who does have an extensive background working in um, both behavioral settings as well as administrative um, and uh, social work settings in school systems of various various kinds. And so um, Becca's going to talk with us about that today. Um, she is brilliant and is going to uh, you're just going to love being able to hear some of the both philosophical and practical ways that she has found to uh, implement this work in a school setting. We also talked about how to advocate for your kids. Um, so if you're a parent listening to this, please, please, please don't shut this off. Please uh, dive in with us to help understand the complexities of um, that, that your school leaders, your teachers um, are facing. And so without any further ado, here are myself and Becca McKay talking about school system change. Well, as we said in the opening, we've got uh, Becca McKay here with us from ETC now. Um, however, she has not always been at ETC. And so um, we wanted to have a conversation today about um, systems work. And so whether that is in schools or nonprofits or, um, or any kind of organization where you are attempting to um, work with kids or with people who have experienced early adversity, early trauma in life, um, there are just a list of complications that come in. Um, and knowing the information doesn't always just help you to understand practical steps to do it. So we wanted to talk with Becca today specifically about what is it like to uh, begin um, putting into place some, whether you want to say TBRI principles, trauma-informed principles, um, what does it look like to create fellow safety for the kids you are working with in schools? Um, and so Becca is, honestly, when, when I thought about, you know, who we wanted to have today, Becca's the one. <laughs> like she, she and I, um, full disclosure, did work together for um, some years in a school setting. Um, what feels like seven ages ago, um, but we we also then, as we parted ways professionally after that, um, Becca continued on working in schools and in, in all, all different settings. We'll talk about that, and um, her experience is just super valuable. And um, having seen her actually working there, I, I can just let all of you know, like. Uh, the stuff that she's going to say today is absolutely true, and I've seen it happen and, and be put into place in my own eyes. And so just know that. Um, so, Becca, uh, long-winded introduction, but uh, why don't we start by just you giving people a framework for um, how you got into working in schools, what was your motivation behind that, and then we'll go from there. Absolutely. So I um, graduated with my social work degree, moved to Memphis for a year-long internship, and I was not sure about grad school yet, but I knew I wanted to work with kids primarily because I had done some after school stuff in college and I just got super invested in some kids there and um, found out like 
you know, I was kind of good at it. Like I like, I'm good with kids. Adults yeah. sometimes are difficult, but kids, man, like <laughs> I have all the patience in the world for them. I have all the compassion in the world for them. And so um, for my first internship, I was working with JD at a school, um, met a lot of fantastic educators there and really started to kind of see. So we were working in what uh, Memphis calls turnaround schools. So a school that was maybe failing in all the test scores and all those metrics and they are somebody's trying to come on in and they're trying to turn the school around. And so that includes obviously a lot of academic interventions, but at the same time, you also have to take into account the behavior considerations and the socio-emotional part too. So I was there just as an intern years and years ago and never left. So then when I went to grad school to get my master's, I did my intern all my internships in a school. I became a school social worker for a while and then um, kind of without a whole lot of notice, a dean of students quit. And so I became the social work dean. So I never, once you're a social worker, you just kind of are that. It's more than just a title. Like I, it wasn't like I took off my social work hat and like now I am the dean. It was like, hey, I'm still me. I'm still a social worker. But now I'm also, you know, kind of over the behavior tracking and the discipline process and school culture and those kind of things. So that's my experience um, in a couple of different schools here in Memphis locally. So for those of you listening from other states, things may be called different things in different states. You may have different stuff available to you. But I think we can all agree the work is hard. (laughs) So if you are working in any school pre and post COVID, which I did both, um, there's just extreme challenges facing kids across the states. And so I think Thinking about trauma-informed education, man, is just becoming, thankfully, more of a buzzword. I think, J.D., when you and I were doing it uh, almost a decade ago, it's like it was really, really new. Nobody really knew much about it. It was just barely, barely catching on. And now it's kind of a buzzword. And so with that, there's like pros and cons, right, when something becomes a buzzword. But I think things have changed a lot, um, both in good ways and in some tough ways with with, uh, the last couple of years. Well, let's, I mean, yes, to say the least. And, and I think um, let's maybe start with some more philosophical stuff, right? So like when we look at school settings, there are obviously within our context in the U.S., but definitely abroad um, and in, in basically any human society we could find, school cultures are going to be um, a a great concern for the community. Like, what is it like in the school? What is the, what is the environment like? It's the whole reason that we find so many variations in how we educate our children around the world. And so in some settings that takes on a high structure, high discipline, high, um, high demand, lots of expectations setting. And then in some settings, it takes on a high nurture, high, Mm -hmm. um, high emphasis on socio-emotional learning, all of that. So help us understand, first of all, kind of the setting that you were working in and why um, the knowledge of trauma in the brain was so important in your particular context. And then why don't we start to kind of help give people a, a fabric for why they ought to be looking at the same information for their context? 
Good question. And I love that you brought up the structure and nurture because I think in my experience, I worked at two schools and one was really high structure and one was really high nurture. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes when you hear trauma-informed, you're like, oh, if it's just nurturing, then you're trauma-informed. And I think um, it's way more complicated than that, which I was able to see with my own two eyes. And so the first context I was in was super, super high structure. What does that mean in real life? Um, kids have to sit in a certain position in the desk. Kids have to walk with their hands behind their back in the halls. And the theory behind high structure is kids need a lot of structure, which is a good theory. Kids need so much structure to thrive and grow. Um, what I found kind of revolutionary when I first ever went to a conference where I heard about TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, was like, man, we sure give a lot of no's and we don't give any yeses to kids for any reason ever. Can I get a new pencil? No. Can right. I stand up at lunch? No. Can I go to the bathroom? Sometimes that the question, the answer to that question would be a default no. Mm-hmm. So that was my first context was out of a really, really um, heartfelt desire to help kids. We created a really high structure school, but without the high nurture, what was missing was, you know, then you get into intense altercations with kids. So when you've got that high of structure, enter in a kid who's experienced trauma, enter in trouble regulating, and you've got power struggle after power struggle after power struggle, fights about, you know, the smallest, it could be the smallest little infraction, and it could turn into a huge issue in the classroom. So I will be honest and say, I thought, oh, the answer is just high nurture. And then for my second school, I went to a Montessori school, and it was a super high nurture and um, I learned that that's not always the answer either, because in that situation, you've got um, high, high nurture, and sometimes the expectations aren't clear to kids, and sometimes kids don't know what to do. And so you can have kids maybe spiraling out of control, um, maybe some unsafe behaviors, maybe just some like really chaotic stuff going on. And so I think in both places, I was able to see, man, trauma-informed in the high-structure school looks like sprinkling in those yeses, looks like asking myself, why can't the kid sit on the other table instead of this table at lunch, right? And then on the high nurture side, it was, ooh, this kid doesn't need to be told, okay, go ahead and get to work. This kid needs to be given two choices. You can do this or you can do that. And so I think I had a cool experience of seeing both. And where trauma-informed comes into play, right, is all the stuff that we talk about on this podcast all the time with brain science, the regulation things, and that idea of felt safety, So as educators who are trauma-informed, you and I both know, JD, that we wanted to create felt safety for kids. What makes it even harder, I think, in schools than most other contexts is that you've also got to grapple with like real safety of the rest of the class. Right. And you and I have both seen our fair share of unsafe behaviors, whether that's hurting other kids or or themselves. Mm -hmm. And we've seen our fair share of um, mental health related to this conversation. We've seen our fair share of abuse and neglect related to this situation. And so when you get all that kind of into like a little bit of a powder keg, it can be, it can lead to a big explosion. And so as a trauma-informed educator, you've got to hold a couple things in your brain. you got to hold, okay, I know this kid needs this kind of support, but I've also got 30, 32 other kids, and I've got to hold their safety in mind too. And sometimes you can do both. And JD, if we are just being honest with each other, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to choose. You're right. You're right about that. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, Becca, when I think about my own experience there, so I was was not in the school 
in a teaching role. So I was um, working in partnership with a community organization in the school, um, primarily to do after-school programs. But during the day, um, I, I kind of defaulted as um, kind of like an office, like an administrative person in the office. So um, something popped off in the cafeteria, I'd be able to go offer support there. Or if uh, one of the kids that I had in programs was having a tough time or melting down somewhere, like I would go assist there. Um, they needed character lessons taught in the classroom, I would go do that. Sub for PE, go do that. Like, And so I played this sort of utility role during the day. And then in the after school space, I would, um, we had a, a network of volunteers and after school programs. And I think, like, I don't even remember, maybe 12 programs now that like ran at various days and times throughout the week. So in the after school space, I would go gather all of our kids from their classes and we would have them in our different places. And so some of the challenges you talked about, you know, you might be listening to this and you're in the educational space, but you're not in a classroom space. So, you know, that struggle of, you know, we were in a community that is, um, that, that is pretty tough, like in terms of, uh, high violence rates and high, um, kind of, dangerous outside conditions on the right days. And so there would be times we would be walking to the community garden or walking kids over to the community center. And if something, if shootings broke out or fights broke out, we had to make really quick decisions and be able to get a large number of kids into safety very quickly. From a trauma-informed standpoint, that, that can present challenges. And so I definitely have heard the feedback before, like, this is great. The idea of like sitting with the kid and having a time in or being, um, being in the space with them and giving them time to sort their feelings out. And sometimes bullets are flying and you don't have a chance to, you know, to be fully trauma informed in a situation or, or to TBRI in that situation. And what I would say is, um, of course, you're going to operate in full safety modes in those moments, the same way that you would as a parent, the same way you would in, in any setting. And so sometimes the best thing that you can do is think proactively way ahead, way down the road. And so I think that's something that you and I talked a ton about is that there would be um, one of the most helpful things for us was to just kind of know the temperature outside. Like we would know, Hey, is this an outside day? Man, it feels pretty heavy outside. Let's have a direct plan. We're going to not take the outside route that leaves us on the sidewalk longer. We're going to take, you know, out the back of the cafeteria, take a straight line, direct line, because we want to get from safety to safety quickly without having to react in front of the kids because different traumas might affect kids or, or trigger kids in different ways. And so you never know when something is going to set somebody off, that flight mentality kicks in. And all of a sudden you're yelling at your volunteers, stay with them. I'm going to go with this. <laughs> like I'm chasing this guy down the street. And so, uh, you know, I would say step one from my perspective, from that after school space and that um, kind of in that, like you were talking about having large groups of kids um, and how do you handle this? You have to be proactive. You have to be um you have to think a few steps ahead and just make sure that the environments that you're creating are predictable, that they are, um, have the least number of variables involved with them and that you have some answers for the most potential variables that could occur in those situations. Um, when you're thinking about those behavioral spaces, you know, we both referenced being somebody who get called in to work with kids who are having a tough time. Um, for, for people who listen to this who are either classroom teachers or 
directly intervening in some way, shape, or form with behavior. What are some easy or easy? None of this is easy. Sorry. What are some? <laughs> what are some simple um, and kind of straightforward first steps that classroom teachers and other folks can be thinking of in this space as they begin to implement or look for ways to implement these practices? Okay, I'm going to answer it, but I have to give one more philosophy because um, whenever you are working with kids in any capacity, uh, there's a a really, really big paradigm that we at ETC take, which is that discipline means to teach, not to punish. Mm. And for many, many folks who work with kids, there is a core deep belief from how they were raised and what they believe that when a kid has um, a bad behavior, we'll call it what, what they might call it, they deserve or need a punishment. And so I would say a big shift that has to happen internally is you have to decide um, kind of like which camp are you? I mean, that that's kind of like a, you got to decide which camp are you in? Mm-hmm. Because if we're thinking about systems change, right? Whenever I worked in this school, you know, you have that mentality among some of the staff. And over the years that I was there, many, many staff bought into the idea that discipline means to teach we can be proactive. We can think through this in a trauma-informed lens. But there are a few folks who still kept that punishment mindset. And that's just gonna, that's never gonna lead to alignment. So you just have to know, you know, as you enter these spaces, there are some core beliefs that may not line up. But if your core belief is it's not a question of if we correct behavior, but how. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if your core belief is, this is for safety, this is for long-term growth and development, then you shift to that teaching mentality. So the first thing you got to do, which, you know, and I I know teachers are exhausted right now. So hearing the first step, they're going to want to just probably slap me and keep it moving. The, (laughs) The first step is to build relationships. And I know that that sounds ridiculous. And I've seen the TikToks of, that, you know, admin comes in, kid does blank. And their first question is, did you build a relationship? So I'm sorry to be that person, but it is the first step because if you're not proactively getting to know kids and having those connecting moments, then I could give you any intervention in the world. And the kid is not going to respond in that moment if they don't have a connection with you. And if they don't believe that you're for them. So the kids that you're having the most trouble with, whatever you're setting, Find out what movie they like, what video game they like, what games they like, what their families like, what color they like, what ice cream they like. Get to know them proactively. Then in that moment of meltdown, you um, de-escalation man, is so much about being calm yourself. So if you can stay regulated and responsive, if you can talk yourself out of your fears. So for example, if you've got a kid that's fighting Sometimes you got to jump in and you got to like get between those two kids. That's the first step. You got to create safety, real safety first. Second step is trying to get that kiddo away from the big audience, right? As much as possible. And it's going to take a team effort. Some people have a lot more administrative support than others. Um, I was so fortunate to work at two schools who had a great amount of administrative support. And I'm so grateful for that because I know some teachers are out here and they just don't have help. So if you are that teacher, you know, as best of your ability, getting kids to the hallway, getting kids a little bit, a little bit away from all their peers can be really helpful. And then use what you know about the kid. A lot of times it's physical. If you can move their body, if you can get them a snack, if you can get them a drink, I'm going to say another hot button there. I've seen a lot of TikToks about kid got in trouble. They came back with candy. Okay. 
I do not propose that you should give kids candy when they're having trouble. I do think that the science would tell us that many physiological things can be resolved with a high protein snack and some water. And so I am a huge advocate of if your kid is starting to have a meltdown, if you can catch it low, get him walking, get him getting a drink of water, get him getting a snack. Those are some practical low strategies. Once they are at their peak, once they're really upset, in that moment, it's about creating safety and getting them away and then processing that after the fact. And so many times as adults, we want kids to like feel bad for what they did and we want them to feel the consequences of their actions. And so I do want to say like boundaries and limits are so crucial. We cannot have schools or after school clubs or spaces that are safe if there's not boundaries and limits. That's right. But shame runs deep for these kids. If you know anything about trauma, you know that it really changes the way you see yourself in other people. So I think being trauma-informed truly is whenever you see the kid's behavior differently. It doesn't mean you don't see it. It doesn't mean you don't acknowledge it. You just see it differently and you see different pathways forward. And some of those pathways are inside that moment, creating the systems that allow folks to take kids on a walk, that allow folks to get the room cleared if it needs to be safe, that allow folks to spend time with a kid. But then there's the proactive piece, JD, which I think is so huge. And and that's going to be so personal for people. It's going to depend on your personality, but the more you can give kids space to get to know you, to be connected with you on the front end. And again, if you are me and you lean more towards nurture, man, you're going to have to work on those routines and procedures and those classroom things. But if you lean more towards structure and you're going to have to be like, okay, I know I have to, I know that in my classroom, we always do X, but I'm going to take one minute to like kneel down, talk to this kid, get on their level, see what they need. Um, I just think, yeah, I think those are, those are some of my, I know that was a big, that was a big little bit of a, of a ramble, but those are some of my initial thoughts to that question. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think just to even elaborate, like one of the things that uh, we saw over and over again in the school context, and if you're listening to this, this doesn't have to be in a, you know, high need area. It doesn't have to be, this could be the, um, this could be the most, you know, prestigious private school in the country or the highest need, you know, lowest performing academic school in the country. Um, one thing that is uh, paramount for anyone working with kids in this setting, you mentioned building relationships, and I would even kind of just elaborate on that even more. If you can find out what makes the kid feel safe and who they feel safe with, adding that safe person to your relationship list will save you so much trouble. And as parents, if you're listening, this is a parent, you know, when a teacher comes to you and says, Hey, I heard uh, little Johnny say so-and-so today in school, like, is that really what's going on? And you're, you're laughing. Like, I'm not sure where that came from, but here's, here's what he probably meant. You and that teacher immediately now have a better paradigm for how to, I can know, and this is coming out at school. And so let me talk more at home about what happened with this and, and how the situation unfolded or why, why was this construed in this way? And then at school, the teacher kind of hears stuff and now has a filter for how to hear what's going on. The teacher also knows there's a loving adult. There's a trusted adult somewhere in this home where I can now, when I've got some concerning behavior, not in the moment of the worst moments, but proactively 
man, I'm seeing some stuff. I just wanted you to know, like, and have a heads up. Is there anything going on at home that, that might be feeling this? Or, or how can we figure out together how to care for them comprehensively? So finding out who, who that safe person is for them, sometimes it's not going to be a parent. I mean, sometimes it's going to be um, an uncle or a coach or uh, somebody at the community center where they go for aftercare. And so finding those people and being able to help collaborate in their, in their felt safety is really, really helpful and important. One of the best members of our school-wide, at our school, we called it the attachment village because we really did have this perspective that you're talking about of like every adult is here for each other. And one of our kids who had the most, um, he just needed a lot lot of support. He really bonded with our um, grounds manager. And so the grounds manager would take this little guy, he would take him to, you know, let's go check on the leaves, let's go check on the gutters, let's go do this, that, and the other. And it was so, so critical to a really, really tough moment in this little guy's life. He had a lot going on. Um, And instead of it being like a, you're going to go see so-and-so when you're in trouble, it was the opposite. It was, hey, I get to see you yeah. I get to just be with you because I just like being with you. So I love that you brought that up. That's such a good perspective. And like, I think, think about the cafeteria managers, think about the hall monitors, the librarian, our librarian was another, um, another, and, and our uh, front desk manager was another lady. And so like, whenever you've got an approach, so if you're an administrator and you're trying to figure out how to make your school or organization more trauma-informed, get everybody on board. Because when everybody's on board, kids have those multiple adults that they can check in with. And it's not a one size fits all. My personality doesn't vibe with every single kid in every single setting, but I can see the kid and I can try to make that connection and I can try to support them over the long haul. So I just love that you brought that up. Well, one more thing I'll mention too, like kind of along those ideas of, uh, along the lines of ideas that help to build attachment, um, you know, when we think about, uh, very few of us enjoy sitting and being focused on one particular task for a very long time without interruption, let alone when we're in a eight-year-old brain instead of a grown-up brain, right? And so being able to have helpful interruptions throughout the day, what we know from a neuroscience perspective is when we can kind of switch activities and engage different parts of our brain for short bursts throughout the day, throughout the school day, it gives uh, not just a break to your learning brain, but but nourishment to it, and helps to refocus and helps to bring um, creativity and all all kinds of other helpful stuff. So I am obviously not a neuroscientist, and so you can look up those yeah. things. One of the things that we integrated um, at the school was there. There were some studies we had read about the helpful benefits of music and dance within the within the school day, and there was just a study that was done on a teacher, and I think she was in Colorado, who just decided to have 10 minute dance breaks, you know, I think two or three times throughout the day and leading up to state testing, they did that in her class, no surprise, outperformed the entire school. So I looked at that and thought about within our, our school context, you know, talk with our school leaders and they were nervous, but said, okay, fine. So I don't think they knew the scope of what I was thinking about, but I did have a DJing background. <laughs> and so we began, uh, every Friday just having, uh, having music for the kids and lunch. And, and I mean, Becky, you were there, so you know this, but where that, where that led to is over time, it built this excitement for Friday. So teachers then were able to say, Hey, stick with me. Remember Friday this week, we've got 
We've got dancing and we've got music during lunch. And so you don't want to make, you don't want to get suspended. You don't want to get, um, you know, taken out of that setting. And so let's, let's keep focused. And then, you know, one thing we were finding is that, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, like kids love to cut loose and, and dance, but then it was much easier for them to focus as they got back into their classes. And so um, that was something that was super helpful. And then in a camp setting, we, we kept a lot of data with that and having uh, loud music, having dancing, you know, having, having an environment that was fun and kind of carefree for very calculated short bursts throughout our camp experience mm-hmm. helped kids that were getting suspended left and right throughout the school year be super, super successful in that setting throughout the summer. Um, and so um, obviously there are a thousand tips and tricks we could share along the way. And we're going to talk to folks over the next uh, several weeks who are in all kinds of different settings within this um, nonprofit or, or school uh, setting. Um, why don't we sort of wrap around to sort of our, our, our usual um, audience and topic and talk from a parental perspective? Like, you know, I, I've got kids in a school. How can I help advocate for uh, some of these practices to um, be informed? What are some things that maybe parents could suggest to teachers that are um, small incremental changes or things that would help um, to bring um, some stability or fellow safety within a classroom that a parent could ask for? I love that question. I would say if you are a parent, um, send a couple of thank you notes to your child's teacher first. Mm, Teachers are just um, having to juggle, not only knowing different kids' behavioral uh, triggers and what and what kind of bothers them, but they also have to know their academic levels. They're being held to really high standards all the time. Yeah. So teaching is so stressful. So my first advice is to parents is build a, re- a good positive relationship with your child's teacher. Then I think... Um, I would actually start at the top, JD. I would say advocate to the principal to support teachers because I think um, there are so many tips and tricks that I would love to get that we have given some for teachers. Teachers can try a lot of things, but trauma-informed is not just, hey, I think you should have a calm-down corner because a calm-down corner might work great or it might be a place for kids to go and throw and break things. Like it, There's not a one-size-fits-all approach here. But what we know to be true is that from the top down, schools becoming trauma-informed takes a lot of support and time for the proactive stuff. And so the more parents can advocate to principals, to assistant principals, to school boards, um, to that kind of level, the more that teachers are supported and the more that teachers are supported, the more they have the mental space to kind of to kind of support kids. Yeah. Now, I do think I will say caveat, if you know your kid and you you are the expert on your kid, you know them inside and out, you know them better than anyone. What you don't know is you don't know how they behave when they're away from you. Oftentimes, it's really different. So I would say collaborate with that teacher and get to know your kid in a different setting through the teacher's perspective. Um, Build a really, really positive, strong relationship with that teacher to get to know them. And then if you know that your kid has sensory processing issues and it's obvious that the teacher doesn't know anything about that, absolutely advocate through like education. Hey, would you read this article? Hey, would you listen to this podcast? Hey, at home, whenever we're struggling at dinner time, what really helps is fill in the blank. So definitely use what you know to be true of your kid. But I would say, um, I would say to do it in a super, super collaborative way. And I would say to understand the bounds of the school rules and regulations. You know, it's like um, some kids, it's like the parent wanted 
I just, I fielded a lot of parent requests is why I'm answering the question this way. And sometimes the parent requests were reasonable and sometimes it just wasn't, we weren't able to do it. You know, one of the requests was, well, can't he just sit right here in this spot in the hallway? Well, there was no adult supervision in the hallway. And so, although I did not disagree with the parent, it just wasn't, we didn't have enough staff members to promise that whenever he needed to, at any point in the day, he could always sit right there because there may not be a person available. So it was just being, you know, yes, I agree that he needs a safe space and let's work together to come up with a couple of options that might fit the situation. Does that make sense, JD? Am I making any sense at all? Oh, totally. I think parents need to advocate for their kids. That that is your job. And you've got to know, you've got to know what your kid tends to struggle with. And just, I would say, be honest. A lot of parents don't want to tell teachers anything about their kid if their kid struggles because they want the teacher to give the kid a fresh start. But unfortunately, what happens is that kiddo gets into the environment and they really struggle and the teacher has no context. And if they have no context, oftentimes they don't have compassion. So if we can provide the context, it can help build compassion. And when we are compassionate, we still set really good, healthy boundaries and limits, but we do it in a way that just makes sense for that kid. And we do it in a way that's not like shaming and punishing. We do it in a way that's just um, supporting them and supporting their growth. Teachers have to keep things moving. They got to keep, kids got to move from one thing to the next a lot. Kids have to do hard things. Like some kids have to do math and they don't want to, or they have to do science. So teachers have a tough job, but, but parents can hundred percent advocate and give that context that can, that can help. Yeah. I mean, I would say from, from someone who like we do a lot of advocating in our family for mm-hmm. our kids. And, you know, while we believe our kids' school is special and everybody believes their kids' school is special, if you believe that, you know, like, um, yeah it's not some extraordinary thing. Here's what we found too. I'll give these two tips as we're leaving. Think about things that don't cost extra time for the teacher. So is there a request for, Hey, can we, can we get a closable, not going to sweat everywhere, just water bottle? Can we, can we keep a water bottle at the table? And and we, we promise we'll always send it with just water. It's not going to be Coke, you know, like (laughs) spewing everywhere when it spills, whatever. We're going to send water. And then can we advocate for whether it's having some peppermints or something like that in a moment where there might be some fidgetiness or I I need to have, you know, to chew on something and have some in my mouth. Can I have a peppermint or some kind of like double bubble or something like that where I can easily. And I know gum is a trigger for lots of people. So, you know, buckle up on that one, but what are some ways that don't cost massive amounts of time for the teacher that can give our kids opportunity to self-regulate when they feel fidgety, when they feel like they need to move their bodies a little bit, or, or they need something. Um, and then you, you nailed it. Like be proactive in your care for that teacher as well. Like early on, let them know you're there to be a partner, not, um, an adversary. Um, and so it's, it's thanking, you know, proactive in the beginning. And it's also when you have those conversations at the beginning of the year to give context, it's also, hey, I'm here anytime you have questions or if there's anything that you want to know um, that, that you feel like can help you in this setting, please don't hesitate to reach out. Like, I'd love to help. Also, you know, do you need any copies made? Do you need anything like just all, offering an olive branch of being able to be a helper in the class to be in, to be an ally to that teacher is a huge, huge help. So, um, this is kind of the first of lots of these conversations, Becca, but um, thank you so much for being here with us and starting this conversation today. And then um, before we go, do you have any, any kind of closing thoughts for us um, as we head out? I just have one, which is for if you're a parent, if you're a principal, if you're a teacher, 
uh, when you start to try to become trauma-informed, it's just big and wide and deep and scary and feels like a lot. And I was at um, TBRI practitioner training and our mentor told us, if all you do the first month is just give more yeses, that's a great step. So I just want to encourage folks, whether you're the parent, whether you're the teacher, whoever you are, make a step, just make a small step and just keep making those steps forward because we can't support every kid's every need every time, all the time, but we can get better at it and we can become more aware of the needs and we can be curious about how we can keep moving forward and be flexible and creative. But when we get super burnt out and overwhelmed, we tend to shut down and resort back to what's comfortable so it takes being, you know, being a little bit mindful and just giving yourself those little baby steps. Um, but if you if you hear this podcast and you're like, oh, it's too much, just pick one thing. Just pick, you know, hey, we're going to do Friday journal prompts and we're just going to start writing about our feelings. Hey, we're going to do, we're going to try going on a walk and talk a couple of times a day. We're going to try doing peppermints a couple of times a day. Pick one thing and just know that as long as you're doing your best to understand what's really going on with the kid and proactively support that kiddo. That's all that you can do for, for, for now. And that's enough. <laughs> that's great. Becky McKay. Thank you. Well, a huge thank you to Becca for coming on today. And hopefully uh, during the course of that conversation, I know there are lots of different directions that conversation can go, both philosophical and practical, um, extremely nuanced or generalistic. And so uh, what we would say is that um, if we wanted to, we got off the, the call and I said to Becca, we, we could do an entire podcast on <laughs> doing work in this way in schools. And so... Um, just know there are more conversations coming that way, um, but take heart. Remember the practical steps we talked about. Remember the ways that you can advocate for your kids. And then you as educators, those of you who are educators listening, um, do not get overwhelmed. Start where you can start. Take baby steps. Uh, and just know that, uh, man, the kids we're working with, our kids, uh, deserve the, the best that we can give them. And so uh, I hope that this help episode was helpful for you. I cannot wait to share our next week's episode with you. And so uh, make sure you tune in next week for Kyle Wright, for uh, Tad Jewett, for everyone on the ETC team. I'm JD Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empower to Connect podcast.